This is an Occult Confessions special report on Plague and Pandemic. This week, I'm bringing you a special Plague edition of Occult Confessions. Podcasts can make some small contribution to our global effort to stay inside by helping to pass the hours while we quarantine ourselves in our homes. That's why I've committed to doing a weekly episode for the next four weeks, rather than our usual bi-weekly schedule. On today's special episode, we're talking global pandemics and the interaction of science and religion on the way our species handles disease. We'll be covering smallpox the plague, also known as the Black Death, and cholera, as well as reflecting on how history helps us to better understand what's going on with coronavirus or COVID-19 right now. I'm joined by Dr. Matt Hatkoff, PhD in microbiology. Uh, Dr. Hatkoff was on our college's emergency management team in the face of coronavirus, and he co-teaches a seminar on the nature of consciousness with yours truly, Rob C. Thompson, your host and supreme hierophant of the Secret Order. Dr. Hatkoff, welcome. Thanks for having me today. Delightful to have you. Now, Dr. Hackoff and I are alone in his house because we are in the early stages of quarantine. Uh, Matt, why don't you tell the good people uh, what the state of Maryland is like at this moment? The state of Maryland is actually leading the United States away into isolating just about everybody. Uh, Rob and I are currently sitting six feet away from each other, which is the minimum (laughs) safe social distance in today's world. This is true. (laughs) As of just a few hours ago, our governor has shut down all restaurants, bars, and culture, essentially, for the foreseeable future, as well as higher education, lower education, and anything that's not listening to a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So, So here we are, podcasting away. All right, you ready for this, Matt? Let's do it. We're going to start with smallpox. All right. My favorite. You're, is it? No. Okay. But plague <laughs> is my favorite. So okay. so let, let me just note that my PhD was literally studying the plague, so yeah. the Black Death. So I spent a good par- portion of a decade researching plagues. Oh, this is going to be fun. Uh, I mean, coronavirus is not fun, but this is, <laughs> this is the greatest uh, excuse we're going to have to talk about plague doctors. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Our audience is way into plague doctors from what uh, Instagram is telling me these days. Well, my training has finally come into use. I kind (laughs) of wish it hadn't, but hey, I'm really prepared for this. Uh, Now, Matt, I got to get a little business out of the way before I get into smallpox. Uh, I do have to do the pledge. Uh, You don't know the pledge, do you? No, I don't know the pledge. That's all right. I will do the pledge all alone. This is going to be an odd experience for our listeners. I, a member of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit myself to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as I know it, as well as, in this case, disease, the plague, and smallpox. Smallpox. Some believe smallpox may be as old as 10,000 years, and first transitioned from cows and monkeys to humans. But this is pure speculation. We're hearing things like this now, right, Matt, about corona, that it's come from bats? It's actually very common for a lot of these unknown viruses or bacteria to actually uh, species jump from an animal that humans have close contact with into humans. So we do have a similar virus to smallpox in cows. So you think conceivable that that a pox could have come this way? Yeah, the very first vaccine was named so because uh, Edwin Jenner used the vodka virus, so vodka meaning cow, Ah. in order to inoculate people because he noticed that milkmaids were resistant to smallpox. Interesting. 
The disease was difficult to diagnose at first, masquerading as less dangerous ailments like chickenpox, until, of course, in the individual patient it would get out of hand and and lead to death. Uh, This term, smallpox, was coined in the 16th century to differentiate the smallpox from the greatpox. You know what the greatpox was, Matt? I don't know what the greatpox was. Syphilis. Ah, of course. Uh, In West Africa, it was called Naba, or the chief of all diseases. Evidence of scarring in mummified remains shows that smallpox existed in ancient Egypt. The earliest known victim is Ramses V, who died in 1157 BCE. We're guessing based on the lesions on the mummy, right? Smallpox claimed a number of famous victims. The Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius may have died from it, depending on how you read the reports. Uh, Elizabeth I contracted smallpox in 1562, which she then survived, going on to be one of the longest reigning monarchs in English history. George Washington contracted the disease in Barbados in 1751, and his subsequent immunity uh, served him during the American Revolution, in which smallpox was a regular element of battle conditions and strategy. Also, Abraham Lincoln contracted a mild case after giving the Gettysburg Address which he passed on to his valet, who did subsequently die of it. The disease is transmitted through close contact, either on the skin or through the air. It manifests symptoms quickly, such that it does not travel invisibly. It affected humans exclusively and could not be contracted twice, making servants with pockmarks particularly attractive to prospective employers in Europe. It's a common thing, isn't it, Matt, in immunology? Yes. Generally speaking, the whole idea behind vaccination is once you've gotten a disease or a weakened version of a disease, like a vaccine, then you're immune to it for the rest of your life. Uh, now, when we're coming to viruses, this is particularly difficult, though, isn't it? Coronavirus, we couldn't just crank out a weakened version and... Be good to go. No, not in any time frame that we'll see in the next couple of months. Likely, with uh, all of the medical researchers basically turning towards us, we're hoping for a vaccine in the next 12 to 18 months. So that would put it into mid to uh, late 2021. Hmm. So uh, given what we know about smallpox, uh, that it was uh, something you would either die of or become immune to after you'd gotten through it, uh, the disease has actually been generational. It disappears after a generation becomes either immune or dies and then reappears as that immune population dies off and everyone does not have the immunity because they haven't been exposed. It manifests in uh, three days of flu-like symptoms that may include a rash and then the fever breaks, making you feel like, oh... I'm going to be all right now. This is a false sense of recovery, though. The pox begins in earnest after that fever breaks. It comes back. Uh, The body's covered in a rash, which develops into pustules that uh, can be hot to the touch and will scab over. The disease would attack the lungs, the heart, the liver, and ulcerate the eyes. Victims would die between three days and two weeks after the infection manifested symptoms, and the pustules were the main conduit for the disease, releasing the virus even after the patient had died. Half of all people exposed ended up contracting the pox. Can I give you some good news about the pox? Please do. It is the only virus or bacteria that has been completely eradicated from the planet Earth. Mm. Humans are the only known species to be able to contract, carry, and transmit smallpox. So in 1980, when the last person was cured, it was essentially removed from the planet, except for two freezers, one in the CDC in Atlanta, and then one in the USSR. Wow. So, you know, the commies and we were essentially (laughs) keeping something so that we could uh, keep each other in check. Now, Matt, is it your understanding that the USSR has managed to keep a handle on their stockpile? They're not sharing it around? Um, 
they've probably shared it around. <laughs> there's there's de- there's decent evidence to suggest uh, that maybe it could have gotten out the during light the cold through the war. clouds. Yeah. <laughs> now the clouds have gathered again. Okay, so smallpox is credited with the first documented pandemic in human history. That does not mean the first pandemic. It's just the first one that we were able to record, particularly in the Western world. This was the Athenian plague, which took place in 430 BCE. The Athenians, led by their golden age ruler Pericles, were besieged by the Spartans and retreated inside the city walls. Sparta was a land power, and so the Athenian navy could easily supply the city despite the siege. Civilians from across the countryside gathered inside Athens' city walls, creating unusual population density. Hmm. The historian Thucydides records that the enemies of Athens had consulted an oracle who promised them success. In this way, the plague can be interpreted as a judgment of the gods in favor of the Spartans and against the Athenians. The words of a prophet of Apollo about a Spartan war bringing plague circulated around Athens as the pox traveled from house to house and person to person, striking them down without rhyme or reason. Hopelessness accrued in the plagues victims hastening their deaths this now smallpox was indiscriminate right it didn't pick off certain members of the population anyone could catch it anyone could catch it yeah yeah the greatest misery of all was the dejection of mind and such as they found themselves beginning to be sick for they grew presently desperate and gave themselves over without making any resistance as also their dying dust like sheep infected by mutual visitation for the greatest mortality proceeded that way People realized that it was dangerous to care for the sick, since this often meant that the pox passed to them, but that they did not mean that the sick were unattended. According to Thucydides, the Greeks realized there was a loophole in the contagion. But those that were recovered had much compassion, both on them that died and on them that lay sick, as having both known the misery themselves, and now no more subject to the danger. For this disease never took any man the second time so as to be mortal. In time of plague, it's often the case, as artist and philosopher Antonin Artaud observed, that order breaks down and people indulge their most antisocial tendencies, giving vent to hidden desires. Says Thucydides, such was the case in Athens as well. And the great licentiousness, which also in other kinds was used in the city, began at first from this disease. Neither the fear of the gods nor laws of men awed any man. Not the former, because they concluded it was alike to worship or not worship, from seeing that alike they all perished. Nor the latter, because no man expected that lives would last till he received punishment of his crimes by judgment. But they thought there was now over their heads some far greater judgment decreed against them, before which fell, they thought to enjoy some little part of their lives. Pericles was a populist leader, and he was credited with advancing Athenian democracy and creating the Athenian Empire, but he died of this plague, along with his wife and two sons. The sight of burning funeral pyres eventually drove off the Spartans wary of contracting the pox themselves, so although they defeated the Athenians, I suppose, in this war, they they didn't exactly just walk into Athens afterwards and, and claim victory. 25% of the Athenian population was ultimately killed, and the pox spread to China by 250 BCE and even ventured as far as Japan. 
often when it gets to China, it makes the jump to Japan. I think there's a lot of travel back and forth. Probably trade. Yeah. Close close trading partners. So the disease uh, ravaged native populations, most famously in the Americas. Uh, This was sort of like one of those, the two instances when smallpox had a great historical impact. Uh, The first was during the uh, Peloponnesian War in 430 BCE, and then again it happened in the 16th century and 17th century and up through the 19th century in the United States. It arrived uh, with slaves on the Caribbean islands and uh, killed off half the population in Puerto Rico in 1519 in a matter of months. This thing moves fast, right, yeah, with the the quick turnaround time where someone showing symptoms within three days usually means they're contagious. So it is highly contagious and very fast moving. So in theory, it might be easier to shield from than coronavirus, right? Because you can see who has it, whereas corona, you don't always know. Right. And I believe, generally speaking, only the people who are showing symptoms of smallpox actually are contagious where with coronavirus, where it gets very scary, we have some early uh, data that suggests that asymptomatic people, so people who are not showing any symptoms, not coughing, they can also transmit the virus. Even if they never develop symptoms. Even, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even if they're not sick, even if they never get sick, that doesn't mean that they're not a carrier and can get somebody else sick. In Mexico, uh, smallpox decimated the Aztec Empire. Estimates on the death toll among Mexico's native people vary wildly between 2 and 15 million people in less than a year. Hernan Cortez, the Spanish conqueror, and his men evaded the disease, uh, with some few exceptions. I mean, there was a Spaniard who brought it over, right? But they were pretty much good to go because many of them had contracted it in childhood, and so they were immune. The disease similarly affected the Mayans and the Incans, uh, essentially paving the way for Cortez and Francisco Pizarro's uh, relatively small European armies to conquer Central America and the Aztec Empire. We're talking about 16 million people with armies of, you know, a few thousand. I think that makes the perfect case for what happens when a virus enters a naive population, so a population that has never been exposed to yeah. it before, which is the entire world as we sit here, and With coronavirus. Corona, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it similarly impacted North America's native people going back to the Plymouth Colony in 1633. The disease swept from east to west, killing tribes across the continent, and was a significant tr- contributor to the decimation of native populations and the eradication of tribes. Uh, so smallpox, I think, in the United States or in the Western world is most famously associated with the death of native people. And, and this is in large part, we don't think about this too much, but because the Europeans were at least partially immune to smallpox. So native people, as Matt's saying, completely unexposed, they were, were wildly vulnerable to the disease. And it didn't care. Didn't care if you were old or young. There was, there was no way to, to dodge it. Okay, let's get to the plague, shall we? That was it. That was smallpox. No, did I mention that it was uh, eradicated in 1980? Yes. Yes. 1980. Good year. Good year. Excellent year. <laughs> the, the year before HIV AIDS was figured out. Uh, was, as a thing that existed. Exactly, yes. But not solved. Not, not solved, <laughs> not but solved. The, the first recorded case in humans of HIV AIDS. Interesting. So we eradicated smallpox and then HIV came right around the corner. Well, HIV was already with us. It was probably, the, there were reports that believe that HIV was with us since the early 1900s. Wow. Uh, but it just hadn't sustained human-to-human transmission for any significant period of time until probably the, the 60s or 70s. Well, we're not, we're not going to really get into sexually transmitted diseases today. Let's take a minute for HIV. Uh, so that's really fascinating, Matt. So it was a, what happened in the 1970s and 1980s that precipitated the spread of the disease and I, pandemic levels? I think it was a change in culture. People in the 70s exhibited a lot of um, risky behavior. Oh, you're talking about the sexual revolution. Yes, a lot of sex, a lot of drugs. 
very easy to spread sexually transmitted diseases. Up until that time, you get a case of herpes, it's not the end of the world. This is the first sexually transmitted disease that was actually lethal. What about prostitutes, though? I mean, frequenting prostitutes, this is an ancient tradition. How, how did we not end up with HIV via prostitutes? There were just never a cross-species transmission uh-huh. early enough. Okay. So, so it, hadn't, it basically was living a, a similar version of the virus. It was probably in some type of animal population up until that point, and it just finally had jumped over. Oh, I see. Uh, and the, the good news is, in terms of smallpox and how it connects to HIV-AIDS, is individuals with AIDS cannot actually receive an immunization because their, or a vaccination because their immune system is shot. So had we not eliminated smallpox in 1980 before AIDS became a global pandemic, we may have never been able to eliminate it. Wow. So if you have AIDS, of course, that's immune. So, but even with HIV, you can't receive a vaccine? Um, I think now with modern medicine, you can because the immune system stays intact for a significantly longer period of time. Oh, but at H- first. HIV used to always progress to AIDS. So HIV is being, HIV positive is having the infection. Having AIDS is having acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. So that's actually having the disease. And we can now essentially prevent the, that disease from ever manifesting in individuals with HIV. That's fascinating. Let's get to history's bad boy, shall we? Oh, the plague. The Black Death, yeah. Uh, well, it's only called the Black Death in the Renaissance in the medieval period. Um, but it had three, as you know, Matt, three major uh, instances of pandemic. We had the first, second, and third pandemic. Yes. Plague. The first pandemic was in 541. It was the Justinian uh, pandemic. There you go. You don't even need me. No. I've I've given this talk many a time. Fantastic. Uh, The the most famous and notable one was from 1347 to 1351, which is where the name the Black Death actually came from. And plague is actually called the Black Death because it causes necrosis or tissue death. So when an individual is infected with the plague, it will travel to the regional lymph nodes. So think about under your armpit or inside your groin. Mm-hmm. It will replicate within the cells there, essentially killing them, turning them into large black buboes. So it's, imagine shoving a softball under your armpit and that being dead tissue. That's your bubonic plague. That's the bubonic the plague. Bubo. And you are, it is uh, medically invalid to call any swollen lymph node a bubo unless it is caused by your Arsenia pestis, so the causative agent of the Black Death. Oh, so that's what it was, say it again, Arsenia pestis? Yersinia pestis. Yersinia pestis. So this is the Latin name of our This is the bacteria, yeah, that is the, the name of the bacteria that causes the Black Plague or bubonic plague. Let's get some of the deets out of the way here. Uh, plague can spread by an insect vector or by human-to-human contact. Its most common form is bubonic plague, which is spread by fleas. The fleas vomit the... Here we go. This is about to get nasty. Would would you like me to cover this one, the mode of transmission? (laughs) Yeah, please. Talk about how the fleas vomit the bacteria. All right. So what happened is an infected flea... Well, let's start from the beginning here. A rat is the natural reservoir for this bacteria. So think of all of the rats in the 1300s essentially sleeping with the human beings. Mm -hmm. A flea will jump onto the rat. It will feed on its infected blood, pick up some of the Yersinia bacteria, and then it will jump onto the human being sleeping right next to the rat. It will then bite the human, and it will regurgitate the rat's blood containing the Yersinia pestis bacterium into the human being, thus starting a chain of infection that can lead to the bubonic plague. 
There's something horrible going on in the flea, right? Like the bacteria has literally gummed up its gastrointestinal tract. Yes, so it forms what's known as a biofilm in which the proteins on the outside of the bacteria will stick to one another and then uh, create essentially a blockage. The best way to think about this is if you go to the beach and you look down at a rock that's covered in algae or moss and it's like a fine green mat, imagine that at the microscopic level and that's what the bacteria can do. Ugh. That was literally what my dissertation was on, was studying the proteins that allow this type of biofilm formation. In the gut of the flea in and the then in of, our bodies. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Let's talk about the three forms of plague, shall we? Starting with the bubonic. So the bubonic plague is characterized by the bacteria moving to the regional lymph nodes and, I guess, causing the bubos that I mentioned before. The other form that's fairly common is known as pneumonic plague, and there are two types of this, a primary pneumonic plague and a secondary pneumonic plague. So if Rob was bitten by an infected flea and the bacteria moved to his lungs, he would have a secondary pneumonic plague, meaning a pneumonia or a lung infection with this bacteria. That would cause him to have the the classic symptoms of a pneumonia, coughing, trouble breathing, shortness of breath. Uh, he would then cough or sneeze the bacteria. Can we do this with somebody else? Yeah. <laughs> Which could then land land on me. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, no, Rob's got it. So now he's coughing. Oh, we, oh, I'm six feet away. Are you all, still all right? Or? I'm, I'm okay. If You're Rob okay, moves okay, closer. Six feet away. Yeah. <laughs> if I lean a little bit. If Rob leans in and coughs on me. I am a trained actor, so I can push my voice. I can probably it, really project that. Yeah, I feel like he could him. get an arc probably, <laughs> oh, and it no. would just land, land right on my uh, face. You should probably give a warning. This is not something to listen to at lunchtime. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> so if you inhale the bacteria directly, it's going to go straight into your lung, causing a primary pneumonic plague. Now, mm-hmm. pneumonic plague is the deadliest form of the plague. If left untreated, it's essentially near 100% deadly. Now, you have to imagine back in the day, there are not antibiotics to treat this like there are today. And the rarest form of the plague was known as septicemic plague, and that's in which the bacteria gets um, injected or regurgitated from the flea directly into a bloodstream that is also very very deadly so generally this wouldn't happen the flea is regurgitating it into your skin your skin your muscle imagine it biting your arm it's it the chance of it hitting a blood vessel directly would be very small so it's like if it settles on an artery exactly yeah Mm. So this actually happened to a guy in New Mexico in 2002. Do you know about this case, John Tull? Um, there are actually 5 to 15 cases every year in the United States of plague. This guy had his legs amputated. I was reading about this guy. Uh, he had septicemic plague, so he didn't have bubonic. Yeah. He had actual septicemic plague. He's, the, I think, the only known survivor of septicemic plague. Probably was treated with antibiotics very quickly. Yeah. But losing the leg probably had a lot of replication of the bacteria there. Him and his wife. His wife caught it, but she didn't get the septicemic plague it hit for him. I think it yeah. just advanced and advanced and advanced. Um, so, yeah, it's just a matter of a lot of bacteria. Let me get a little history on the bubo in here. Just some fun history facts. Uh, let's see. The word comes from the Greek bubon, meaning groin. you have a a major lymph node hanging right out there in your groin it'll be the groin and the neck right and the armpits like you said those are your big ones yes and then sometimes inside the knee and the elbow yeah places to look uh let's see what else medieval doctors called uh these things uh, emunctories 
the Bubos, and believed that they drained the humors from the liver, heart, and brain, pulling them in the Bubo. So unlike Matt's actual scientific definition of what's happening with the dead tissue, uh, the, your medieval doctor thought that you know, the various humors coursing through your body were pooling in that one area, and so lancing them uh, was a good idea. Uh, they would use a poultice, they would lance it, they were cup it, cup it you know, cupping? Have you seen this? Oh, yeah, like the... You put the cups, the cups all over, yeah. yeah. So they would actually do this over the bubo, or they would cauterize it with a red-hot branding iron. Mm. Sounds painful. Yeah, and that that's literally doing nothing, right, Matt? Um, no, I mean, if the bacteria touch the red-hot iron, they'll die, but there's about another few million more coursing throughout the, your body, so, so it's not going to cure the person. So, so it's a slight help to yeah. cauterize all the buboes. <laughs> it's going to kill a few. Without modern antibiotics, the bubonic plague kills 60 to 90% of its victims within six days of the onset of symptom, symptoms. And, and where are we at now with the antibiotics? We're pretty good to go. Uh, as long as the antibiotics are administered within the tw- first 24 to 48 hours of symptoms, the, the mortality rate tends to be very low. But there, there will be a handful of cases every year in the United States and anywhere between 1,000 and 3,000 worldwide every year. I want to get to some gross stuff with septicemic plague, too. That was the most extreme form Matt was talking about. Uh, for those who survive long enough to manifest symptoms, and it'll generally kill you within 24 hours, those symptoms include bleeding from the nose, eyes, and subcutaneous bleeding, which manifests in purplish spots all over your body. Ugh. Sounds like a nice hemorrhagic fever. Yep, that's basically what you got there, yeah. but like full body. <laughs> full body hemorrhage. Oy. Symptoms of the pay, uh, plague include, uh, Matt's been mentioning a few of these, high fever, gastrointestinal distress, headache, sensitivity to light, delirium, loss of motor control, and a vague feeling of dread. I feel like we're doing a drug ad here a little bit, but like in reverse. Yeah, these, these are all the effects you'll feel before the side effects of the drug that cures you. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's do the first pandemic. Matt mentioned the plague of Justinian, which began in Upper Egypt and traveled to Constantinople in 542. It afflicted Alexandria, Jerusalem, Palestine, and Syria, followed by Spain, Italy, France, and Ireland, and lasted through the year 750, although there are recorded instances of a disease featuring buboes going back to as early as the 5th century BCE. What is your understanding of how old bubonic plague is? They think the bubonic plague is somewhere between 2,000 and 4,000 years old, so that would put it its first recorded case is maybe at 2000 BCE, but okay. it's really hard to get any reliable biochemical or genetic analyses from yeah. tissues that are that old. Well, well, let alone documentation. I mean, right. it's hard to, to verify documentation going that far back. We don't have much documentation 2,000 years ago. And that's not to be said that, that people really didn't believe, and I use the word believe, in bacteria and viruses until the late 1800s and early 1900s. So right. they both thought it was witchcraft that was killing people or... Uh, a force from above. Or a miasma. Yeah, miasma, bad air. Let's get to that miasma. Okay, so the first pandemic encompassed much of the Mediterranean world. John of Ephesus believed the plague was a punishment for the world's sins and described sightings of headless, dark figures appearing on the sea in shining copper boats. How do we account for that? Maybe he was infected, and that's that delirium sentiment <laughs> right there. No, John Ephesus survived to write about it. Uh, he, John could witness divine punishment in real time uh, when a greedy thief sought to rob a plague-ridden corpse and ended up succumbing himself soon after. So that definitely looked like God's vengeance, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you don't know that there are, ima- well, not imaginary, They're, invisible yeah, real. microorganisms, then yeah. yeah, it looks like straight-up vengeance. Well, even the fleas are pretty tiny. Right. So, historian Proscipius recorded that people afflicted with the plague were often visited by spirits who tortured them as waking visions or haunted them in their dreams. 
Many people saw spirits of divine beings in human form of every kind, and as it happened, those who encountered them thought that they were struck in this or that part of the body by the man they had met, and immediately seeing this apparition, they were seized by the disease. Now at first, those who met these creatures tried to turn them aside by uttering the holiest of names and exercising them in other ways as best one could, but they accomplished absolutely nothing. For even in sanctuaries, where the most of them fled for refuge, they were dying constantly. But later on, they were unwilling to even listen to their friends when they called them, and they shut themselves up in their rooms and pretended not to hear, although the doors were being beaten down, fearing that he who was calling was one of the spirits. But in the case of some, the pestilence did not come this way, but they saw a vision in a dream and seemed to suffer the very same thing at the hands of the creature who stood over them, or else to hear a voice prophesying that they were written down in the number of those who were to die. But with most, it happened that the disease seized them without being made aware of what would come by a waking vision or a dream. This is weird. I mean, that sounds like it's definitely affecting the central nervous system. It's terrible. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's terrifying. Do you not think it does? I don't know. I, I've never read much about it. I don't think they really researched it once they figured out how they could cure it. I mean, you die from internal bleeding and blood loss and pneumonia. Right. So no one really cared about whether you're going crazy when you're bleeding out. Bodies had to be buried in mass graves regardless of rank or status, and people walked around with tags on their arms or necks so that they might be identified in the event that they dropped dead. Business ground to a halt, and even agriculture was deeply disrupted with grain rotting in the field, unharvested, and farm animals roaming wild through the countryside. It's basically the equivalent of the college going online. Yep. <laughs> People came to this. Our students are roaming wild through the internet. <laughs> the corn in the, the, the field is starting to decay. Yeah, I wonder. Well, I guess agriculture would probably be all, all right with corona, because that's a fairly solitary activity to get on your tractor. Yeah, and this is, coronavirus is not as deadly. Right, we right. Can, when we get there, we could talk about the the balance it strikes be, between infectivity and mortality. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to we'll we'll, we'll visit that theme. Uh, people came to understand the concept of contagion uh, as early as this plague, by the way, and they knew that if they stayed in their homes in a time of plague, they risked death, and so many ran away. So by stay in their home, I mean if their home is surrounded by plague or there's plague in their home, they should pack up and go. Mm-hmm. Pagans and homosexuals were scapegoated for the plague, right? Because they were breaking God's law. Yeah, it's shocking. Uh, but society didn't actually target them until after the danger had passed. So once the plague ended, we were like, you know what we got to do? Quit all that pagan homosexual stuff because God's going to come back on us with this plague. Yeah, it's weird. We, we love to find a scapegoat when it comes to infectious disease, don't we? And have no time to persecute them until after we're done dying. Right. Let's, <laughs> let's not enjoy the fact that we all survived. Right. We're let's al- get angry at somebody. We're now. alive enough. Yeah, yeah. we're going to get angry. Uh, the plague moved freely through the Mediterranean, traveling first from Egypt to the Roman Empire because of the wide-open trade routes in the region. Uh, as the disease spread, trade routes contracted, uh, creating a kind of unintended quarantine which calmed and eventually ended the pandemic. So basically, we quit trading because we were busy dying, and so it was not being passed as much anymore. The more famous second pandemic, uh, Matt's referring to the Black Death, hit Europe beginning in 1347. The disease had its greatest impact through 1350, but persisted 
returning every decade through the Middle Ages. Major resurgences happened in Naples in 1656, London in 1665, and was regarded as the deadliest medieval uh, of medieval and Renaissance diseases, although its virulence diminished over time. Do you know anything about this? Gets less dangerous as time passes? Um, I don't know. There, in, in the research field, there are some studies that believe that the version of the 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 bacteria that exists today is different from the one that exists in the 1300s specifically during the Black Death, because that had about a 33% mortality rate for a lot of major European cities, whereas now we see it significantly less when there's an outbreak. So, I mean, it would make sense for the virus to some extent not to murder its hosts. I'm going to have to correct so you, bacteria. Quickly. Oh, bacteria, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so, but if it's murdering its hosts so quickly... That's not necessarily a great survival tactic no. for it. So you have to imagine any bacteria or virus, its sole singular goal is to replicate. If it can make you sick, but not sick enough that you stay home and then it can pass on, it gets a new host, it can replicate more. When a virus or a bacteria causes an illness that essentially scares people away from you or forces you to sit on your couch and watch Netflix all day and not move and not have human contact, <laughs> yeah. that's not good for, for the particular infectious agent because then it can't be passed along. So they don't necessarily want to kill you, but they do want to replicate. So it's a fine balance that these microorganisms have to find between virulence, so the ability to cause disease, and mortality, so it's, its ability to kill you. So, like, if you, your really optimum, like, just survival bacteria is, like, the ones hanging out in our guts right now. Like, those guys aren't hurting anybody. They get to carry on as long as they want. Right. I mean, the the, the best would be a, that's called an E. coli. And even though I will say diarrheal diseases and waterborne illnesses are one of the number one killers around the, the globe. Cholera, we're coming for you. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Very soon. That's our next one. But if you can find something, the common cold is a great example. It can replicate, it can make you sick, and you can pass it along to somebody else. Now, that being said, there are upwards of 100 different types of viruses that cause common cold. Hmm. Fun fact, 10 to 20% of all common colds are caused by a coronavirus. Really? Not SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, as we're calling it, mm -hmm. but a family members. So you have to imagine viruses have family members. They're similar, but they can also act very differently. So some common colds are caused by coronaviruses. The one that we are dealing with currently, COVID-19, is very, very different from those. So I don't want you saying this is just the cold or this is just the flu. Mm. It's just genetically related. I can't imagine all of you are like your cousins. So think of it that uh, way. Yeah, I do have cousins in Florida who, uh, you know, are, you know, like me, but uh, also very different. Yes. <laughs> the second <laughs> pandemic uh, killed 50 to 60 percent of the population. It affected uh, killing around 50 million. So pretty, pretty damning. And that is actually when the word quarantine came into the human lexicon. Oh, interesting. In the 1400s, the early 1400s, um, plague was obviously not completely eradicated and people were terrified of it since 50 years ago wiped out most of Europe. So when people would come down with the symptoms of the plague, they would essentially send them off into a region which they could not interact with somebody else. And I think it was some region of Italy, funny enough, mm -hmm. where people would be put into isolation, which then, be, then was known as quarantine. So let's talk about miasma. Both Christian and Islamic doctors blamed miasma as the cause for the disease. Is that, is that a, good, a good pronunciation for you? Yeah, Mi miasma. miasma. Mm -hmm. uh, um, a miasma was a corruption of the air, either from a cosmic 
astronomical source or a terrestrial source like a swamp or rotting corpse. The plague doctor mask. Right. right? And it, to be fair, that is not too far off from reality because viruses and bacteria can be transmitted through droplets, through breathing on each other. So bad air was not a terrible guess, except for they thought it was cosmic in nature. So we strap on our plague doctor mask, that big old nose is going to keep us further away. Exactly. It's going to trap any particulates. It's going to keep droplets of blood or secretions out of your face. So it's not a bad guess. But all that potpourri shoved up the nostrils, that doesn't make much difference. No, that's just so everything (laughs) smells rosy. Right. But at that time, they believed that that it really was preventing. The stench itself was dangerous. Regulation of air, food, sleep, and mental states were prescribed as preventatives. Emotions were thought to be responsible for moving or pooling the humors in certain parts of the body, making the individual susceptible to disease. Doctors prescribed ancient remedies. I mean, ancient, like they would go back to the ancient Greeks when they were making prescriptions because they didn't know about the Justinian plague. They assumed that ancient doctors had never faced the plague, and so the ancient techniques were untested. We just need to pull them back out and give them another shot. They'll fix this. Uh, So they did a lot of bleeding, and they used a lot of pharmacological treatments, which may have alleviated symptoms. It's possible. Right. I mean, you know, aspirin's original derivative was from a plant. So there's something to be said for certain aspects of some medicinal plants being useful to mass symptoms. Penicillin is actually a byproduct, so the very first antibiotic is a byproduct of mold. Hmm. So it's not unusual for other organisms to want to stave off bacterial growth or viral replication. Let's talk origins of the Black Death. There's some argument about whether it started in Russia or the Central Asian steppes. What's your preference? I Everything that I thought, it started in Central Asia and then followed the Silk Road, but it is debated which way it sort of went, whether it went down from Russia or whether it circled back around to Russia. Yeah, you're getting into a bit of, yeah, the historians and yeah. the scientists have to debate this one, uh, depending on, you know, how trade routes were shut down and which trade, you know, who was at war with who. Uh, there are traces of plague in China and India, which suggests that it began in Central Asia, where the oldest strains of plague can actually be traced, um, and it spread to Persia, the Middle East and Europe via Crimea. There's possibly apocryphal story of the Kipchak Mongols catapulting their dead into the Muslim city of Kaffa in a form of early, uh, what is it called? Bio-warfare. Bio-warfare, yeah. Um, so that was when, so they, so they felt the plague in their own horde and they were like, ah, we'll just share it with those guys. Uh, from Crimea, it appeared in Constantinople, Sicily, Alexandria, and then major port cities around Europe and North Africa arriving in Germany, Poland, and Northern Russia last. And it actually missed iceland and finland so cool nice tiny island off you know iceland's kind of separated i feel like Uh, finland's in the mix so i guess they just got lucky (laughs) right next to russia there so european doctors uh, ascribed uh, to belief in contagion so this is the concept that things are contagious right Mm -hmm. that it can pass from person to person by proximity europeans argued over whether god was the cause of the disease some christians resisted the notion that plague was god's punishment because it made patients give up hope feeling that they deserved suffering and death in the traditional teachings of the prophet muhammad he is believed to have said and i quote plague is the piercing of your enemies from among the jinn meaning the genies also if you hear of an outbreak of plague in a land do not enter it if the plague breaks out in a place where you are in do not leave it 
Yeah, a little self-isolation there. I yeah. like that. <laughs> oh, gee, okay. Not bad. Yeah. <laughs> what about the gin? Well, you know, you can't be perfect. <laughs> okay. Muslim doctors were split on the issue of contagion. Some believed in contagion, others that plague was the work of God, or as the Hadith suggests, which are the traditions of Muhammad, uh, the jinn, the genies, uh, which were, they were kind of like demons. Uh, traditional Arabic pagan culture believed in the jinn, uh, but they were they neither good nor bad. They could sort of go either way. So they could cause disease. Contagion itself was called the stinging of the jinn. Muslims did not flee from the disease, feeling that they were meant to face God's wrath. Uh, often, that was the attitude. and Or at least that Muhammad had dictated that they stay in place, whereas Europeans often did flee the plague. Uh, while the European approach seems more logical, it left many sick patients unattended. Hmm, that's a consequence. Servants and relatives who chose to stay were often fumigated and bled to promote health in the face of the miasma. Oh, the bleeding is just too bad. There's just so much bleeding. So much bleeding. (laughs) Well, that's literally making you weaker, right? Because you have to replenish the blood, plus fight off the infection. Some believed that watching a man in his death throes would spread plague in a kind of visual contagion, a problem they remedied. Now, this is interesting. By not blindfolding you, but blindfolding the patient. So I guess it came from their eyes. Wait, so if I watch somebody die, I would get it. But as long as they can't see me, then I don't get it? Yeah, it's like the evil eye. Oh, okay. Yeah, they give you that look, that death look. Uh, Let's quickly dispense with the third pandemic. Maybe Matt will have some things. I'll just lay it out. 1894 surfaced in Bombay and Hong Kong, lasted through the 1960s. Vietnam was its last outpost. So what, what do you have to say about the third pandemic? The third pandemic, it's actually the one that they believe spread it around the planet, which is the cause of all of the cases we see in modern day. Right, it came to San Francisco, right? Yes, the last case in America was in San Francisco. And I want to say it was in 1900, maybe just a, a tick after that. Mm-hmm. Um, Even then, though we're still having them in the U.S., right, in Mexico. So, and... so basically now it's, it's what's known as endemic, meaning it just exists everywhere. Uh, mostly in Africa, the United States, and sound- and Central Asia, just because that's where the climates where the fleas and the the rats or the prairie dogs tend to live. So it's kicking around. Yep, it's kicking around, dogs. but we can we can handle it. So people catch it from prairie dogs. Prairie dogs are a reservoir, so it's the same thing. Instead of a rat, it would be a, a prairie dog carrying around a flea bites the prairie dog, then the flea bites you. We're unlikely to interrupt with a prairie dog in our daily lives, though. unless you live in the Southwest United States. Even then. Oh no! I went to oh. <laughs> I went to uh, Yosemite a couple of years ago, and they have plague warnings all over the park. So, uh, could a prairie dog just like wander through your? If it wanders, tent? so I always I always say uh, it's always the Boy Scouts that get it because they poke dead animals. <laughs> so, if you encounter a dead prairie dog, stay away from it because fleas don't like to drink dead blood; they like to drink fresh blood. So, they will jump off a dead prairie dog or a dead ground mammal, to one that is living, which contributes to the spread of the bacteria. We are saving lives in Yellowstone this summer, right here. All right. Uh, I'm good on plague. Do you want to add anything? This is your your area before we move on to cholera. Um, the last known human transmission of plague was in the... Human-to-human transmission of plague was in the 1920s. Well, that's reassuring. Yeah, so so that's something that's great. But you say we have a, like a 11 cases. Was it 11? Ten, uh, 5 to 15, five to usually 15. in the United States. Every year. Every year. And that's going to be your typical bubonic plague that you get from getting bitten by an infected flea. Ugh, terrifying to see that, though, I'm sure. Even though you yeah. know that you can antibiotic that out of right. existence. Oof. So how would you know if you got the bubonic plague? You when tend, is it too late? 48 hours after you start showing symptoms, you're just going to try to ride it out. That doesn't mean you shouldn't start antibiotic therapy. 
but at that point it's less effective and like any major i don't know pandemic or epidemic the symptoms tend to be non-specific flu-like symptoms because it's very hard to treat something when it's confused with something else. So if you see a bubo, then you're oh, still in good shape. Oh, you're too late. You, I think you're too late. Oh yeah. boy. If you're if your lymph node's swollen and black, you're get you're getting to the too late phase. Oh no, oh no. So you're gonna get flu like symptoms. When will I say to myself, Oh no, I have the plague? You'll say I, I poke that dead uh that Oh, you gotta think that back. dead rat, yeah. Okay. So if you have flu like symptoms after hanging out in Yellowstone. Then you should probably get on some antibiotics. All right. Good good advice. <laughs> Are you ready for cholera? Let's do some cholera. Dr. Jon Snow. Now, Dr. Jon Snow is a real guy. Uh, now, after Game of Thrones, yeah, he <laughs> sounds made up. He does know something. He does. Uh, he was one of the founders of modern epidemiology and is credited with cracking the mysteries of cholera. The miasma or foul air theory of disease transmission had persisted all the way until 1854 when Snow discovered that a water pump on Broad Street in Soho was the source of an epidemic in the city of London. As cholera commences with an affliction of the ailmentary canal, and as we have seen that the blood is not under the influence of any poison in the early stages of this disease, it follows that the morbid material producing cholera must be introduced in the ailmentary canal, must in fact be swallowed accidentally, for persons would not take it intentionally, and the increase of the morbid material, or cholera poison, must take place in the interior of the stomach and bowels. It would seem that the cholera poison, when reproduced in sufficient quantity, acts as an irritant on the surface of the stomach and intestines. Or, what is still more probable, it withdraws fluid from the blood circulating the capillaries. By a power analogous to that which the epithelial cells of the various organs abstract the different secretions in the healthy body. Cholera is contracted by consuming food or water contaminated with fecal matter. Okay, so yes, this is gross. We're back to gross stuff. Oh yeah. Gross oh yeah. When stuff. you get when you get diarrheal diseases, you're eating somebody's poop. Nasty. Common sources might include shellfish and contaminated water. Now this seems like a thing that could happen to you. It's possible. Yes. So Vibrio tends to like to uh, live in warmer water. So if you're eating shellfish and it is the water is cold, it tends to be safer. Now what if we cook this off? He will die by cooking. So this is okay. going to be like if you have your raw oysters or under-steamed clams, under-steamed mussels. Those are going to be the main And sources. they come from temperate water. So if they come from cold water. Right. So and if we're getting local ones here in the state of Maryland, what do you think? The, the good rule of thumb is if there is an R in the month, then it's safe <laughs> uh, to eat oysters. If there is not, then the water will be too warm. I see. October, November. September, October, November, December. January, February, March, April. Don't you don't eat it in May, June, July, or August. Just don't don't bother. If they have a fresh oyster in those months, not for you. If if it's if it's local, if you're, the water source that it comes from is going to be warmer during that time. Now, if you get it from somewhere up up north, more you know Maine ways, the water tends to stay colder there, so it's probably safe for consumption. Now, the the thing that we're less likely to encounter is crops fertilized with human dung. I don't think we do that anymore. No, I, don't think I hope not. I don't know if we, did we ever do that as a culture. I, I don't. I don't know. You're the one who eats organic. <laughs> Fair enough. The disease manifests symptoms between 24 and 72 hours after exposure, uh, partly because the disease must accrue between 10 million and a billion bacteria in the small intestine in order to become an, an infection, uh, and that is a feat that is complicated by stomach acid on the way down. So our stomachs are protecting us from these gastrointestinal illnesses. Yes, generally, in order to cause a gastrointestinal illness, the bacteria has to survive the stomach and get to either the small or the large intestine, 
where it is significantly less acidic. So you tend to need to eat a large number of the bacteria because only a very few of them will survive the acid stomach. Even the food has trouble protecting it? Yes. Hmm, interesting. Extreme diarrhea follows resulting in dehydration with patients losing as many as 20 quarts of fluid a day. Low blood pressure, kidney failure, shock from rapid changes in blood acidity and death follow. Untreated, cholera kills 60% of patients, but with rehydration therapy, all but 1% survive. Now, rehydration therapy sounds fancy, Matt, but that's just drinking a lot of water, isn't it? Yeah, but well, actually, you really want to drink Pedialyte or Gatorade because you need to replenish your electrolytes, yes. So you could have uh, some crackers in water. Yes, and in (laughs) extreme conditions, it may require uh, intravenous therapy. So going to the hospital, getting an IV because you simply cannot keep down enough water try to try to drink 20 quarts of gatorade in a day is going to be very difficult yeah so uh so ivs but i mean these are these are as far as treatments are concerned these are not the most sophisticated of treatments in a hospital not as long as the hospital is up and running and you're in a country with a well-developed healthcare system so when we see cholera outbreaks they tend to be in places that don't have western style hospitals yes or they tend to be after a major natural disaster in which the infrastructure is significantly disrupted Think uh, about uh, Haiti. Haiti. Yeah. I mean, it can happen in the United States. Think about Superstorm Sandy, Katrina. Places that have yeah. the resources, but the resources are down. Right. They've been disrupted or they're being used for more emergent needs. So there have been seven known cholera pandemics in human history, slightly more than the Black Death, uh, but the Black Death lasted a long time whenever it came about. So. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't going away easy. First cholera pandemic began in Calcutta spread through Southeast Asia between 1817 and 1824. The disease is endemic to the lower Ganges and probably spread as a result of the Kumbh Mela pilgrimage. Every 20 years, pilgrims engage in a ritual dip in one of the four river sites, including two on the Ganges. The ritual should sound familiar to Judeo-Christian ears. For Hindu pilgrims, bathing in the river during the festival was a way of cleansing past mistakes in a ritual of atonement and penance, like baptism. Or any of the ritual ablutions that we engage in. Uh, The festival is credited to 8th century Hindu philosopher Adi Shakara, although uh, in its modern form, it probably only originated in the 19th century. The disease spread to Thailand, China, Japan, Indonesia, and the Middle East before finally dissipating. As many as 30,000 died in Bangkok alone. The second pandemic began in the Ganges Delta again, and this time made it as far as Russia, Germany, and the United Kingdom. Let's bear in mind that uh, the United Kingdom uh, has colonized, or Great Britain has colonized India during the point of time when this is all happening. So there's a direct line between the UK and uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, This was one of two pandemics to reach England, uh, where Jon Snow would eventually crack the case of the disease's spread. Should we talk a little bit about Dr. Snow? Yeah, Dr. Snow is an interesting guy um, because he actually had to lie to the government in order to convince them to do the right thing. (laughs) Really? This was a a time in which the government and many scientists, actually, and the the general population did not believe necessarily in bacteria, viruses, or infectious agents. So there was a distrust of science. Mm. And he discovered that the well on Broad Street was contaminated. Uh, knowing that the local officials would not trust him if he said it was contaminated with a bacteria, which they could not see, he simply said it was contaminated with a poison, which was causing the illness. Mm. And since everyone's familiar with the idea of a poison, they shut down the pump 
and essentially stemmed the infection there. So people didn't have a concept of what a bacteria was. Right. Sort Mike, of like saying a unicorn is in the water. Exactly. It's if you can't imagine it, it's harder to, to um, visualize how it's going to work. And, mo- you know, this was not modern medicine in 1854. It's not where we are today. We had microscopes, right? We did, but they were not widely available. Or, and, okay. And politicians don't like science sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Um, fun fact about how he discovered that it was the Broad Street Pump. A very wealthy woman who lived in another region who actually would send her servant to the Broad Street Pump because she liked the taste of the water. Ooh. Contracted cholera. So he was able to do a little bit of epidemiology and essentially trace the infection back to there. And he also noticed that a bunch of folks who worked in a brewery who was right next to the Broad Street Pump were not getting infected. Do you know why? Why? Because they worked in a brewery, so they were (laughs) drinking the beer. (laughs) So that process, even if it's using any of the supplies from the Broad Street area, would still be fine. Brewing is actually one of the oldest ways to make sure that your water is safe. Because as everyone now knows, alcohol-based sanitizers or alcohol itself can um, kill microorganisms. And the brewing process obviously requires water and wheats to be heated up to boiling, which is another way to make sure that the water you're drinking is clean or sanitary. So you're sanitary a couple times over. Yeah. Uh, you know, where I'm from in Jersey, uh, a lot of the pizza places have been moving out of the city because cities are dangerous and they've been moving to, uh, the suburbs where I actually grew up and, uh, they import the water from the city of Trenton because they think the water is what makes the pizza crust. And, yeah. It's the same thing, uh, in New York city, right? You got to have the New York city water to have a real bagel. Right. Yeah. It's the water. It's all about the water. So I understand where that lady's coming from, uh-huh. but I don't want any cholera in my water. Right. So she kind of, which means if there's cholera in the water, it was contaminated with fecal matter. So she was very... Uh, like uh, like the taste of that. Yeesh. And the, the infection was actually traced to a young boy whose diapers were thrown down into essentially a, a dump, if you will, who was connected to this pump. So uh, there, the water was being shared underground between this dump where people were dumping their fecal matter. Diapers, yeah. yeah. And diapers, and then was contaminating the pump. This is why we use uh, washable diapers. Also because it saves thousands of dollars. This is also why you should have running water. <laughs> yes, yes, we were not going to have running water, but... but. It's, it saves hundreds of dollars. It saves hundreds of dollars. Rob goes down to the Chesapeake Bay, but only in months that don't end in R to get yes. the water. Speaking of which, uh, let's do a little Jon Snow history. He was born uh, literate working to literate working class parents in Yorkshire Village in 1813. He's kind of an underdog character, I think, in the mythology, right? He's a little like the actual Jon, not the actual, the fictional Jon Snow. He is the actual Jon Snow. I don't think that the character is based on this guy's name, though, right? I don't think so, but I wouldn't pass, put it past George R. R. Martin to to have. Did he back said, and be aware that. of this? Yeah. 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 Uh, his father rose to the middle class, becoming a landowner, perhaps as a result of an inheritance. So he he started out working class kid, uh, uh, like yours truly, and uh, then he entered the middle class, uh, like Matt and I right now. Uh, Snow was a medical student at a medical college in York during the first outbreak. Uh, he was inspired by Dr. William Lamb, and he became interested in vegetarianism and the notion that good food and clean water impacted a person's health. Now, this was a new idea. (laughs) People didn't know. Vegetarianism still hasn't caught on. But this concept that what you eat shapes your health goes back to the 19th century, not any earlier. Well, it's probably because before then, people did not have the luxury of 
eating healthy because being overweight was actually a sign of opulence and right, having right. money because only kings and queens and noble men and women could eat well constantly. And get the gout. Right. The king's disease. <laughs> he joined the temperance movement. Oh, no. Believing that alcohol was a health risk. Ugh. Despite the widespread be- belief that brandy was medicinal. Okay. Sure. I mean, it's got alcohol. I mean... (laughs) He did groundbreaking research on the use of gases as an anesthetic, writing extensively about the use of chloroform, for example. Uh, When cholera returned to London, he determined that miasma or blood poisoning from foul air was not a reasonable source for the disease. He noticed that the disease was generally confined to areas along the sewage-infested Thames, and as Matt says, uh, history was made from there. The most recent outbreak of cholera began in 1961 in Indonesia and lasted until 1975. Just to bring us up to the present day, mortality rates had severely decreased as a result of new uh, treatment regimens, though, and the usual rate of more than half of cases uh, that were mortal uh, was reduced to only 3% in the 1990s. Higher than corona, but we'll get to that. Still, still is a lot. 3% is still a lot. 3% is way too high for a disease that just requires you to have access to rehydration therapy and in some countries three percent is what's happening with corona isn't it am i wrong no in some countries it's a little bit higher we're um yeah three percent three point five percent seems to be the world average for corona right now uh, when it's a, an adjustment from 60 50 to 60 percent right with cholera that's yeah. certainly a good yes, thing that's, that's a good move you still don't want to be in a room of 100 people and imagine that three of us will die Correct, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, th- that's all I've got for cholera. You want to add anything on cholera? No, I think that pretty much covers it. <laughs> all right, I'm going to pull together uh, our history of our three diseases here, uh, and then uh, Matt and I are going to move on to corona and maybe do some some riffing on some other uh, plagues because uh, Matt is, after all, a, a, plague, a plague doctor, a modern plague doctor. <laughs> <laughs> One of very few, apparently. Right, yeah, so it seems. Uh, so let me just talk a little bit about God because that's my area. Belief in God can play a critical role in times of plague. People who believe God has abandoned them or is punishing them become hopeless. They resign themselves to the disease either by remaining in the zone of contagion or giving up in the face of infection. The Athenians whispered of Apollo's judgment against them, and and those whispers echoed through time in the medieval Christian and Muslim communities who bought into the notion of Old Testament divine wrath. However, The notion of divine punishment could be helpful in containing the disease. The popular plague pastime of robbing corpses was often fatal for the thief in cases of smallpox and bubonic plague, uh, with infected sheets, clothes, or roving vermin contaminating the criminal. That prairie dog, right? Talk about getting your what's coming to you. Right? (laughs) Uh, however, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to, I guess, stray from my, my religion standpoint here, maybe just because I'm sitting near uh, Matt, uh, but basic, basic human decency, uh, as in the smallpox survivors turned nurses, did not need to invoke any divine power to find expression in afflicted populations. In Athens, those smallpox survivors who then nursed the smallpox afflicted uh, didn't feel like God was making them do that. They just thought this was a good thing to do. Maybe some of them did, but they were doing it because they thought it was is the right and decent human thing to do when they realized they were protected. 
Some supernatural belief, now Matt might argue with me here, some supernatural belief might assist in giving proper gravity to a situation of plague. Well, hear me through. Visions of phantoms on copper ships and spirits haunting the afflicted lend greater terror to the plague, facilitating the community's propensity to embrace the seriousness of the disease. Right now, we're struggling with this, aren't we? We're not taking it seriously enough. I will run through the streets in a sheet scaring the <laughs> crap out of people if it will get them to stay inside. Whatever it takes. If it makes visions will keep people inside, then that's hope for some serious visions so people stop partying. If Donald Trump says, uh, yes, I, I was out uh, upon the veranda of the White House and I saw... <laughs> phantoms in black passing through the streets of dc uh i don't know maybe i don't know maybe that changes the conversation <laughs> i don't think i would recommend that he do that um what do we do uh with beliefs that actually facilitate the spread of disease though uh, i'm talking in particular about the hindu pilgrimage to the ganges delta for the hindus ritual bathing in and of itself is not actually a bad idea even from strictly medicinal standpoint because hygiene mm-hmm. Uh, Cholera was a sort of unforeseen and perhaps unforeseeable side effect. Um, But it also points to an idea I want to bring up, uh, what I'm calling microbiological communion, (laughs) that we should consider for a second. Bathing in the river together is kind of like sipping from the same wine cup, right? In a Christian service. Right, yes. Uh, I would say it's even kind of like my students and I, uh, enacting and devising classes, rolling around, you know, doing our exercises. It's the same principle. We agree to share the same germs and suffer the same fate together. It's a kind of way of bonding uh, that suggests mutual care. We can think about the Muslims refusing to flee the plague. They exposed themselves to contagion, but they were also available to help care for the sick, an essential function, live together or die together. Now, we're going to start talking about corona, and I want to lead into it by comparing my idea of a biolo- microbiological communion with social distancing. Because social distancing, which is what we're up to right now, feels kind of like the opposite. It's isolating ourselves in our homes, um, and so we, we feel a little bit like uh, the Christians that uh, Boccaccio, the poet Boccaccio, famously blamed for fleeing the plague rather than staying behind to care for the afflicted. Middle-class professors like me and Matt might feel a little bit like the Prince, uh, Prince Prospero in Poe's Mask of the Red Death. You know this one, Matt? I do not. Uh, Mask of the Red Death, the Prince Prospero holes away in his castle and he has, you know, lavish parties while death is raging outside, but he's so rich and fancy that he gathers all the healthy around him. And then, uh, spoiler alert at the end of the story, this is a P- Edgar Allan Poe story, guess who shows up? Red Death? Red Death, yeah. This guy takes off his mask and he's covered in, yeah, he's pox yeah um so uh, you know some some people might be thinking that they're like prince prospero we're all holed up we've got our resources we've got our middle class jobs we're avoiding death um we're aware uh that the the the, that a disease this contagious is difficult to hide from uh we're also aware that it may end we it may end up on the the wrong side of our doorsteps at any moment right matt's uh, wife is a nurse so she could be bringing it home i could be in it right now I, I did lice all the table before we're up down here. <laughs> Practice you. good good hygiene. Good hygiene. You'll lice all it after I leave. I will. <laughs> uh, like Prince Prospero, uh, we will be less affected by social distancing than folks in the lower rungs. We should also be aware of this. Uh, lower rungs of the economic spectrum, whose jobs, at least in the United States of America, now bear in mind we're in the U.S. where our uh, social safety net is not quite as robust as some of our European listeners might have, um, and and their jobs can't often can't be done remotely and don't provide paid leave. 
right? We're talking about waiters. We're talking about manufacturing jobs. There's a lot of jobs where they might just be out of work. Right. We live in a service industry now, and in order for those people to get a job, there has to be people to serve. Right. Oh, that's, yeah. So these folks are uh, also statistically, you like this turn here, Matt, most likely to suffer from the kinds of health complications that would make them more vulnerable to the disease. Folks in the lower economic spectrum, mm-hmm. the lower rungs of the economic ladder, are the folks who are most likely to suffer from things like diabetes and, and lung disease yep. and all these sorts Any of things. Any underlying health conditions that they may not have been able to go to a doctor and treat because they weren't provided with health interns. Right. Our social safety net, again, not necessarily robust. Uh, try, we try to avoid politics. It's getting tougher and tougher, especially with this issue. Uh, the coronavirus or COVID-19, however, is not like smallpox or plague. It does not strike rich and poor, strong and weak, indiscriminately, it is uniquely dangerous for the most vulnerable among us. I mean by this the elderly, those with compromised immune systems or respiratory systems, and in terms of economics, those who cannot afford to be off work and cannot work from home. In time of corona, social distancing is the equivalent of staying to nurse the sick. I actually think that we're more like the Muslims who are staying behind to nurse the sick by staying in our homes. Prospero was a fool for laughing in the face of death, Edgar Allan Poe's character. Many of us have no reasonable expectation of death, right? Kind of. Yeah. We have a minor, like a 0.5%, right? Maybe less for those of us who are healthier. If you're healthy and you're under 39, they say it's 0.2% chance of dying from this, which is, I think, one out of 500, if I'm doing my math off the top of my head quickly. Not too To put that in perspective, that's... 10 to 100 times more likely to die from coronavirus as a 35-year-old than from the flu. Mm, well, still not great. No, not great. I, I like I like my odds with the flu much better. But not with bubonic plague or smallpox. At least bubonic plague, we got antibiotics now. But yeah, without, <laughs> not smallpox. Not smallpox. <laughs> the ritual of quarantine, the point I'm trying to make, of keeping apart is actually a way of pulling together. Like a science professor and a professor of occult things getting together to serve the community on a podcast such as this. Uh, it seems like we should be, I don't know, it's, you know, in times of plague, right? If we stay behind and nurse the sick, this is sort of the righteous self-sacrificing thing to do. But right now, the righteous self-sacrificing thing to do is to not get together. Right. As I've seen on on the, the internet, uh, people have said, you know, our grandparents were called to war. We're called to sit on our couch for 14 days. It's, <laughs> it's a sacrifice that every single American who can afford it and who has the luxury of doing it should be doing. Because if people like Rob and I are sitting home, then the grocery store worker or the service worker who has to go out has that much less of a chance of getting it. That's a great way to think and about it. And then they also will not be bringing it to their elderly grandparent at home or their parents who are at home with them. They won't be overwhelming the hospitals where my wife is going to probably end up getting this disease and bringing it home to me. Right. But I don't want her working 20-hour days, seven days a week. I don't want her so run down that she gets it. So by us staying home, we are making the sacrifice of our freedom in order to make sure that other folks who can't have the ability to go out and do their jobs. That's a great way to think about it. We also have to bear in mind, people, a lot of our college students, service sector industry, when I was in my early 20s, this is what I did to pay my way through. I mean, these are the future leaders, future thinkers of America. we got to protect these people by not subjecting them to us right. <laughs> as and, much. And, you know, we focused on the, the mortality rate of the 
the people who are under 30, but as you go up to 60 plus, 70 plus, 80 plus, it, it gets scary high where people who are 80 plus have a 15% chance of dying from 15, this. 15, yeah. 15, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and this is unique as the young, typically a viral infection will affect the young and the old alike, so those under five and those over, let's say, 65. The young do not seem to be getting severely sick from this. Now, I want to make the distinction here being sick and being infected are two different things. A young person, someone who's 20, who's out partying for St. Patrick's Day or some other event, may contract the disease, may not show symptoms, but can still pass this along. So, so if we're healthier, we are more likely to just be carrying it around. As I said, the perfectly a perfect virus is not going to let you know that you're sick, but it's going to allow you to transmit it to other people. So tell us about how COVID-19 functions as the perfect virus. So we're going to toggle the conversation now. We, we sort of already have, but we're going to toggle the conversation to coronavirus. We're going to talk coronavirus conspiracies right now. Uh, but but first, let's talk about just how is this the, the perfectly evolved? We were talking a little bit earlier about good bacteria. Like if, you're, if you were a bacteria, if you had to design a bacteria that's going to survive in the population for, you know, the longest, like uh, all of our goal, right, is to yeah. keep the species alive. So the bacteria theoretically is also trying to keep its species alive uh, or, vac- or virus. So how, what is corona like here? So people have asked me, you know, what do I think about this? And I said, if I designed a virus to cause a pandemic, I would have designed COVID-19. Why is that? From all of my research, it is highly infectious. So it has an infectivity of somewhere between two and two and a half, meaning if I get it, I can easily spread it to two or three other individuals. It has nonspecific symptoms initially, you know, a cough, you know, general flu-like symptoms, right? You don't realize till later when you start experiencing shortness of breath or more severe symptoms that it may be something other than the seasonal flu or some other type of cold. And the mortality rate is, I don't want to use the word sweet spot, but in terms of the virus perspective, it's really kind of there. It's scary to us because three and a half percent is a terrifying number. If that's three to four out of every hundred people we know disappearing or dying, but it is also infectious enough to pass around. And I should say the mortality rate is low enough where we all didn't, panic the first case it was in washington people were still out this weekend right so it has struck the balance between being fairly infectious there are more infectious viruses some like measles would be a good example that's highly infectious but it's also has a a mortality rate that doesn't have us running to our homes like it should so uh if we had more phantoms for example People knocking on our door. Right. If you look at what happened in China, um, and again, we don't know all the numbers straight out of there, but if you look at, you know, South Korea and some other places where they essentially self-quarantine as quickly as possible, the phantoms in the road scared them into their homes. Mm. They got the infection under control. Mm. Where the phantoms aren't in the roads, we're going on living our life like nothing is happening. And that's where it can spread to the point where we will be seeing soon, quite possibly, thousands or tens of thousands of new cases on a daily basis in in the United States and worldwide. If we don't stay home. If we do not stay home. So you, do you think we're still at a point where we can get ahead of this? this the folks will be listening on Friday. We're talking on a Tuesday here this week. 
If you've stayed home for the last few days and more states have followed suit from what has happened in Maryland today on Tuesday and some other states, we may have enough time to get ahead of it in the United States. We got listeners in New York, Matt. Now, this is a scary place right now, New York mm-hmm. City and, and the state. Uh, they have a lot of cases. They're right. getting very close to Washington State. Uh, um, what do you recommend New York's ahead of Washington State. As oh, are they today? now? Yes. Oh, okay. I, I don't know because, again, right, I studied the plague. I'm not an epidemiologist, right? My gut is telling me Manhattan may have passed the point where they may be so we're not talking about the end of the world here this is not the zombie apocalypse do not go out and start looting what we're talking about <laughs> so they're is, listening to this podcast right. and just go screaming out into the street yeah. with their hands i mean if you like, want to be a phantom in the street do that don't hurt anybody and just maintain a six foot distance right. <laughs> but what we're talking about is overwhelming the healthcare system there will not be enough available beds for people to get the treatment that they need which is fairly intensive treatment in severe cases. They need the respirator, right? They need respirators. They need oxygen. We do not have that type of capability in the United States. If 10% of all people who get infected with this require treatment... Meaning that 10% would elevate to a state of pneumonia. Yes, a state of pneumonia requiring external oxygen requirements. Mm -hmm. We don't have enough beds in the United States to accommodate that if it happens in a one to two month period. Now, if we flatten the curve over a period of six months, we will have enough hospital beds in order to accommodate that same amount of people. So I'm not saying that less people are getting sick. I'm saying the same amount of people are getting sick, but instead of over a one to two month period, think about it over a six month period. So social distancing may not prevent us from catching it, but it will allow us the medical care we need if we can stretch that time period out as long as possible. Yes. So as as long as we can stretch this out, the better chance we have, because that also gives our research partners both in private and in public universities who are probably busting their asses right now trying to find a treatment for this. It gives them time to find a treatment, which can then be implemented and then help flatten the curve. So we're not talking about a vaccine. We're talking about something akin to Tamiflu, where you can get a treatment that lessens the severity of the disease or can kind of eliminate it in a quicker fashion. So let's turn to some conspiracy theories. We'll, we'll knock out one real quick, and then we'll uh, give some more to our patrons uh, just so they got a little extra something yeah. to enjoy this month. Uh, let's do uh, one of your favorites, and, and then we'll save the others. Go ahead. Oh, one of my favorites is that this is a disease that was created in a laboratory uh, between the Democrats of the United States <laughs> and the Chinese nationalists <laughs> in order to tank the stock market and get Donald Trump out of the White House. Uh, now, Matt, why do you not buy this conspiracy theory? Uh, humans are inherently dumb, and I don't think we have the capability of engineering a novel virus. This virus is 30,000, I'm sorry, yes, 30,000 base pairs. That is 30,000 consecutive letters hmm. that have to be arranged very precisely in order to make it a fully functioning machine. We are nowhere near capable of engineering a virus from nothing uh, in order to make it infectious beyond the absurdity of just a group of political activists, I guess, maybe, working with a foreign national government to make a virus that may or may not 
have its intended consequence. So I, I want to do a little cultural theory here. Uh, this is something that Matt and I, Matt and I do cover conspiracy theory a bit in, in our consciousness class, believe it or not. I don't really know how we loop this in, but we somehow we make the case that it has something to do with uh, at least our social experience, how we construct our social selves. Uh, and, and I think I've talked about this on this podcast, but uh, there's this notion of uh, conspiracy as surfacing when we feel like we've lost agency, that we don't have control, um, and, and that someone is taking that control from us. Certainly Corona, right now, a lot of us are feeling like we don't have control, right? Our lives are not what we're accustomed to. Uh, I can't go out and sit down with my wife at a restaurant. I can't uh, go in and teach my classes with my students. My students can't come to class. Uh, uh, People are at home with their children, and their children are supposed to be at a school building, but now they're working from home, and their children are home. It feels like we're losing control over our lives, like our even our health, right, is being endangered by this this phantom in the night, right? That's going to come into our door. Um, so it feels like Corona is ripe for conspiracy theory. Like it's perfect. It's this perfect agency depriving thing. It's taking away my control of my life. So I'm going to ascribe that control to someone who is actively attempting to rob me of my my power here because it makes me feel better to say these people are doing this to me. And then when I've identified the problem, rather than it's just you know nature. Yeah, <laughs> this is no. just how it is. It's you can you know you can fight a person. You you can fight a war. You can't really fight a virus. Not everyone feels the ability to do that. Right, right. Uh, or fighting a virus looks a little bit more like care than it does like violence. Right. It, it's staying at home. It's nurses and doctors. It's researchers. It's it's not what you think of when you know you hear that you know, flight of the Valkyries, you're going to war and everyone's <laughs> gearing up for something. It's a very different type of call to action. <laughs> right. uh, I am going to turn this conversation over to our patrons next. So by all means, patrons, check it out. Uh, but let me close things off our conversation here with Dr. Hatkoff. Thank you, Matt, for joining us here on Occult Confessions today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Our sources today were Plagues in World History by John Aberth, Smallpox, The Fight to Eradicate a Global Scourge by David Kuplo, Cholera, A Victorian Plague by Amanda J. Barnsley-Thomas. Can we recommend some, Matt? Yeah. Uh, you've got Emerging yeah. Epidemics here by by uh, Madeline Drexler. Any other books? Because yeah, our readers are going to, our readers, our listeners are going to be at home. Uh, oh. If they want to learn more Plague Time, who's the author there? Paul Ewald and Virus Hunter. Oh, that sounds fun. C.J. <laughs> Peters. C.J. Peters. And it uh, looks like Mark Ole Shaker. So uh, there you go. There's some plugs from your microbiologist in residence today. Uh, I do want to say a couple of words uh, we, uh, to, to a couple of listeners. We had a couple of reviews on Facebook from Aaron Marquise finding us super funny. Maybe not today. <laughs> a little less funny than, than we could have been. Less funny today. Serious business. Uh, also, Bob Phillips is appreciating our research. Thank you guys for reaching out with those reviews. Uh, and uh, we want to remind you to uh, check us out on social media, Instagram. Uh, what what uh, Shannon and Olivia and I uh, are attempting to do right now is to uh, recommend other podcasts, essentially, where we're trying to create as much content as possible uh, for you all uh, to, to keep you occupied as you hang in your homes. Uh, so, Minu by producing some weekly episodes, Shannon by uh, posting up some podcasts you might enjoy, uh, and, and we're just going to keep keep this going as, as long as we're quarantined. <laughs> <laughs> I hereby adjourn and declare closed this meeting of the secret order of alchemical, really actor plus Matt, 
Uh, until such time as, as we get together and do it again. Uh, joining us on our voices today, we had Sean Priest, we had Brandon Walls, and Andrew Mims. Now, they were not actually in the room with Matt and I. Uh, those gentlemen have their own recording equipment. You might you might notice a bit of difference in the recording as, as we go through the voices today, or you might have. Uh, and that's because they are emailing me uh, their voice recording. So Occult Confessions is doing it quarantine style. <laughs> as best as we're able to. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, join us next time. Uh, we will be back next week with a regular episode, uh, and then we'll be doing another special episode after that. And our regular episode is going to be on the Rosicrucians. Thanks again. <laughs>